and welcome back to Salt Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm a partner at Skybridge Capital and the managing director of Salt, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. Salt Talks is a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, the next of which is coming up next week in early March in Abu Dhabi, uh, in partnership with key stakeholders there in the UAE, which we're very excited about. But our goal at those events and our goal on these SALT talks is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And with that, I'll turn it over to my partner, Dan Burrill, to begin today's interview. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome back to Salt Talks. My name is Dan Burrell. I'm a partner uh, on the investment team here at Skybridge Capital. Today, we are excited to interview two members of the executive team at Prime Meridian Capital, uh, San Francisco-based um, uh, alternative credit manager. Um, notably, the firm's income fund won the Hedge Fund U.S. Award for Best Credit Multi-Strategy Manager in 2022. So congratulations there. Um, I'm going to pass it on um, to Don Davis, who's uh, CEO and portfolio manager, and then Sean Bill, uh, who's chief investment officer, to talk a bit uh, a bit more about the uh, their personal backgrounds and how uh, Prime Meridian came together. And then we're going to really dig into the firm and its investment strategies. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Um, yeah, I'm Don Davis, uh, founder and CEO of Prime Meridian Capital, and I've been in the industry for a little over 24 years. Uh, previously started Novus Investments in 2004, and that was um, a firm that where we we were an IB and a CTA. We focused on credit, currencies, metals um, in the futures markets, in the global futures markets, and we had uh, uh, some degree of success uh, in doing so. It was a more high volatility, higher risk strategy. We were ranked number one in the U.S. a few times, uh, twice over a five-year period, once over a seven-year period uh, for total return. Um, we were getting a lot of demand over time for low-vol sort of alternative credit strategies and alternative income. So it was something we were exploring uh, quite significantly beginning in 2006, 2007. Uh, we became uh, aware of this burgeoning um, sort of peer-to-peer -peer marketplace lending a space at the time. In fact, my uh, partner, uh, Val Kakiev out of New York, he was one of the very first lender investors at Prosper.com in March of 06. And he built up, uh, he was also the largest individual investor there for seven consecutive years. And uh, so uh, we have some experience and data points with that. Um, going through the 2008 recession, uh, we were shocked to see that that, that account was up 0.5%, you know, while the S&P was down 56 and everything else was torched. And so that was a, a good data point that we had on, on at least that portion of the industry. And then uh, a few years later, uh, the unthinkable happened. Uh, MF Global, the largest uh, futures clearing firm in the world, had been around since 1783, had suddenly gone bankrupt. Now, investors eventually got all their money back, but it took a few years. And so that kind of uh, sped up our, uh, our decision to really you know, pivot and, and make a move into the alternative uh, private credit space. And we started off, and, and back then there were a lot of issues too with um, in the industry. There wasn't any bankruptcy, remote segregation of assets. Um, it, it was a it was a mess. And I was already a kind of a very risk averse guy, and I became even much more sensitive to systemic risk um, after the MF Global collapse. Of course, what we saw in 08 with Bear Stearns and Lehman. I mean, all of that just led to the um, 
you know, the, uh, to an increase in, in risk aversion on my part. And so eventually uh, they tightened things up in the industry and, and they had bankruptcy remote segregation of assets with backup servicers in place. And that's when we felt comfortable in early 2012, starting the first fund, uh, primary and income fund. And uh, we began in the peer-to-peer marketplace lending space as a foray into alternative private credit. But the intention all along was really to build a family of a few different funds covering all the verticals under the private credit space. And since then, we've uh, we've won uh, several notable awards. You've mentioned a couple of them. Uh, thank you for that. We were also uh, voted the top fund manager by the Lended FinTech Conference, which is the industry's largest uh, conference. And that was a panel of 40 judges and industry CEOs. And they, they chose uh, Prime Meridian top fund manager for, for performance, experience, and contributions to the industry. And then the uh, the few awards we won last year as well, which were, were, were pretty notable. Very cool. John, a bit on your background and how you and Don came together. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's kind of interesting. I started out at the Chicago Board of Trade in 1994 uh, on the floor of the corn, wheat, soybean floor. Uh, so Don and I have a little similar uh, history in the commodity markets, you know, um, and kind of think and approach markets from a similar fashion and how we think about risk and, and what have you. Um, I then went out to SoCal, went back to Southern California, joined a fixed income manager, uh, was part of a team that grew that from $800 million to $10 billion. Uh, then spun out of there, started a hedge fund that was seeded by PAMCO uh, with a partner from PIMCO and you know did that for the next 10 years, roughly. And so we, uh, we grew that business and um, you know, 2010, 2011 with zero interest rates and quantitative easing, global relative value trades kind of started to go away. You know, the Polish five-year, five-year forward versus the Euro five-year, five-year forward spread went from 65 basis points down to zero. Right, they just all kind of collapsed on top of each other. So I was, I, you know, we ended up uh, winding down, and uh, you know, I was looking at doing a, a short retirement. So we came back up to the Bay Area. My wife and I are both from the Bay Area, uh, so we left uh, Newport Beach and came back up here. Bought a house, renovated, blah blah blah, uh, and I decided I'd go back to Stanford uh, Business School and study innovation and kind of refresh, you know, myself. And then uh, just very coincidentally, uh, a classmate from high school who was uh, later the mayor of San Jose, Sam Licardo, um, said, hey, you know, we were having some issues with our pension funds and we could use some outside investment expertise. And so he's like, you know, could you help us out on this? And and I became a trustee for the city of San Jose's pension for a dollar a year. And uh, then I uh, became the CIO of Santa Clara's pension. And then uh, another classmate, Bill Coker, was the CIO of San Francisco's pension. And he asked me if I could help him out with the San Francisco pension. I sat on their hedge fund selection committee and uh, was a senior advisor to the CIO's office and the board of administration. Uh, after about 10 years, uh, you know, I, I was nominated to the CIO magazine Power 100 list. I thought to myself, you know, that's a good time to ring the bell and move on. <laughs> and so try to go out on top. And so I, uh, I rang the bell. I was going to do another mini retirement and uh, kind of had a spontaneous collision with Don. And, you know, Don and I actually are four houses away from each other. And so while we had known each other over the years and had bumped into each other at fintech conferences and you know I was investing on the equity side, Don's investing on the credit side, the debt side. So we knew of each other and had bumped into each other repeatedly since probably 2014. And uh it just was pretty random uh you know kind of a serendipitous event that you know Don said, "Hey, you know, I'm looking for a CIO and would love to have a partner to work with." And and so we decided uh you know to give it a shot here. And uh, I joined Prime Meridian uh, at the beginning of 2022. 
That's uh, great. It, it's just not meant to be for you to retire, Sean. It's not meant yeah. to be. Not going to happen. <laughs> My wife's like, hey, how much longer? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, no, this is uh, this great, guys. Um, so let's talk a bit. Um, let's get a bit into the, you know, into the, the, the strategies, right? And what is, you know, to use hedge fund jargon, like what is the alpha proposition of Prime Meridian, right? You know, so one, maybe high level define what you guys do and the different strategies. And then, you know, what do you think your your edges, what what makes the firm special? Well, maybe I'll jump in real quick here. Um, so we have four funds. Uh, we have an income fund, which uh, is like the name implies, it's about contractual income, monthly or quarterly pay, you know, that type of stuff. Uh, we have a special opportunities fund, which is uh, really kind of opportunistic, as the name implies, and really going for uncorrelated investments. And there we do stuff like litigation finance, life settlements, specialty credit, things like that. They're very uncorrelated to other, other sectors in the markets. Uh, then we have our real estate fund, which is uh, a senior secured lending against assets. Uh, and so there we'll do you know uh, single family, multifamily, and residential uh, and commercial. Um, and then we have a new fund strategy that we launched called the non-performing loan strategy, uh, which is, as the name implies, is distress, you know, where we're looking for uh, opportunities in, in, in defaulted loans. And uh, that one just, just crossed its first year of performance there. Um, you know, Don, I'll, I'll hand off to you. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, our, our edge, I think there's a couple different ones and we'll let Don start. Yeah, you know, and one one differentiating factor is that you know all of the funds are unlevered. You know, today's day and age, everybody uh, wants to use leverage to kind of juice up the return, makes marketing easier. Um, it's the easiest thing for anybody to do. It doesn't take any discipline, intelligence, or risk management, you know, or, or education to to use leverage and increase risk. It actually takes a tremendous amount of discipline to not do that and not get uh, tempted uh, by that lure. And that's exactly what we've done. You know, so sometimes the returns are not sexy. Uh, we focus on, you know, high single digit net returns uh, with very low risk. And that's been primarily in a zero interest rate, low interest rate environment for the past 10 years. So if the next 10, if the next five to 10 years are, are higher interest rate environment, if that were the case, we should expect to see our average annual returns materially increase, you know, accordingly. But in either case, um, really, my, my number one objective is to have the highest sharp ratio that we can have you know, to have the best risk adjusted returns uh, that money can buy. And that's our number one focus. Yeah, I'd add, you know, the Harry Markowitz, you know, famously said there's, there's uh diversification is the only free lunch in economics, right? And that I think is one of our strengths. You know, we are highly diversified across our funds. So, you know, not only just at the uh, lending vertical, where maybe we're doing consumer, we're doing small business, we're doing... Uh, real assets, finance, equipment, finance, specialty finance, you know, credit facilities, et cetera. But even within those verticals, you know, so if you look at a consumer bucket for us, uh, you know, we we may have 3,000, 4,000 loans in a portfolio, you know, uh, and, and that creates, it's kind of like the, I like to use the analogy of the Tempur-Pedic mattress. You know, it's like, you can have that glass of wine on there and you can take a sledgehammer onto the, the mattress and the wine doesn't move, right? You do get a, a lump over there, and, you know, you, you do take a hit, but uh, overall, it's a pretty damn stable, you know, vehicle, the way we try to construct the portfolios. I and like that's, that. that's been, I've, I think, one of our secret sauces, you know. 
I've never heard that that used the Tempur-Pedic mattress in an investment context. And I've, I've talked to a lot of you know investment leaders. I yeah. like that. Me, me neither. Oh, yeah, Rick, Rick Reeder and I were talking about that, and we were kind of uh, talking about you know what's what is the analogy? You know, it's like it's like a Tempur-Pedic mattress. All right. So now, if he use if I hear him use it, I know he took it from you, Sean. There you go. Yeah, it might be the other way. <laughs> um, maybe um, um, it's just. Sticking with the funds for a moment, what what does the investor base look like at the firm? Is this, uh, you know, is it an institutional investor base, institutional and high net worth? What is kind of, you know, how if folks are interested in the products, how do they learn more, that kind of thing? Yeah, historically, it's uh, been family offices, multifamily office, asset management firms globally. We've had a couple of uh, large institutions um, that ha- we've worked with as well, and we're trying to get more involved in the, uh, we're actually working on getting more uh, institutional allocation and exposure. You know, yeah, I would, I would, I would, that was one of the things that was very exciting for me about, you know, the firm is, you know, so coming from the pension world, you know, you're looking the, the, the funds that you're shown are going to be, you know, the very big players, the Blackstones, the PIMCOs, what have you. Right. And they're going to be trafficking in kind of middle market, direct lending, very competitive space, sponsor-based lending, et cetera. Uh, what's very different about Prime Meridian and what I thought was very attractive about it is I kind of see, I see like a Blackstone or Pimco as an oil tanker. And I see us as like a little speedboat, you know, we kind of buttress those other portfolios. We're doing kind of niche off the run stuff that those guys, it would be too small for them to really uh, get involved in, right? You know, they they want, uh, you know, the $50, $100 million EBITDA. We're, we're looking for the $10 million EBITDA, $25 million EBITDA company to finance. Uh, so very different type of niche. Yeah, yeah, and I, I I think that's an excellent point, Sean. Right, because you know I think you guys are around two hundred fifty million or so in AUM right. right now, right? And so, you know, when you think about some of the other players in credit markets broadly, right? I mean, you just got some gigantic players, right? And it's you know they can say that they are opportunistic and they move things around. It's hard, right? Yeah. As you manage more and more capital, right? So. Two single size, where you can be really they, nimble. They can do a single trade, you know, on a real estate finance deal for two fifty. Yep, you know, yeah. <laughs> whereas you know we're, we we will we'll have three thousand plus loans in there. You know, if you look at our real estate fund, it'd be three hundred plus loans. You know, uh, you know, so very diversified, uh, you know, book of business. And we also, you know, we kind of being a smaller manager, that's very, um, you know, I, I like to, I always like to kind of say that we try to think like an entrepreneur with institutional resources. You know, we're based here in the Silicon Valley. We're exposed to a lot of innovation. Uh, our backgrounds, Don's background, my background, you know, we come out of the fintech world in terms of investments, right? Me and Angel investing on the equity side, Don on the on the lending side. And so we we do like to try to be kind of early and kind of think of ourselves as guys that are trying to finance the future, right? And so we've done credit facilities with companies uh, where, you know, three years later, four years later, a company like Aries will discover them and they'll do a credit facility that's much bigger. But we get in there before they get in there and we're able to capture what I'd say is a little excess uh, excess complexity premium because people don't understand it. And uh, by the time they do understand it, you know, we're moving on to the next one. So, uh, you know, I think that's one of the other things that really gives us a, an advantage against our peers. Very cool. All right. So let's talk a bit about just the overall market backdrop. So it's been you know, it's been an interesting several years here, right? So we can, you know, let's just, we'll just go back a few years to kind of the, be, you know, the beginning 
of the pandemic. Um, and maybe, you know, talk about how, you know, your various strategies were impacted by that shock in credit markets, which really was, you know, if you were involved in these markets at the time, you know, as you know, we were here at Skybridge, right? I mean, you had exceptional moves in these markets, you know, this gapping kind of price action that happened over the course of a couple of days, in some cases that more extreme than 2008, right? Um, and talk about how that impacted, you know, your portfolios short term, but then also how that created opportunities over the course of 2020, 21. Obviously, the current rate hiking cycle, which is not over, is one of the biggest debates out there. When when is it going to be over, right? How much wood is there left to chop, right? Um, and so talk about how the, the hiking environment has impacted the funds. And then maybe we tie that together to just, you know, what's the outlook? What's the firm kind of outlook overall from a, you know, from a macro perspective and specifically credit markets, right? Because, you know, spreads are still pretty tight, right? Like, tight. I mean, I saw a chart the other day. I I I double checked it. I didn't believe it. It was a Goldman Sachs chart that they put out on IG, short-term IG, and there's like zero spread, like no yeah. spread, right? Yeah. Um, and now you've got, you know, high yield is like, you know. You're paid for yeah. the risk you're taking. I don't think where we are in the cycle. I don't think um, you guys are in some more off the run markets, right? So, kind of talk about what value looks like there. What you're nervous about, given mm -hmm. this uncertain environment. I know that's a lot, but you know. Yeah, why don't you jump in, Don, and I'll I'll fill in. Yeah, I'll, I'll start off with the backdrop on the on the pandemic. So when that first hit, um, and you know, and first off, we use a discount cash flow valuation methodology with a third party valuation agent. That's an institutional gold standard for credit portfolios, but there's a, there's many funds out there that don't do that, uh, even funds are quite a bit larger than us. Um, so in the month of March 2020, uh, the valuation agents and all of our funds did a macro valuation adjust, uh, adjustment. So there were no increase in delinquencies or defaults yet at that time, but they looked forward and said six months from now, things look a lot more bleak than they did the prior six months. So they haircutted the entire portfolios and we had, a, I think in our income fund, we had we were minus 1.8 for that one month. The other funds were still profitable, but they were just, just barely because of that adjustment. But then after that, the, the, uh, the funds held up surprisingly well. The, um, the consumer market uh, did very well. I think the stimulus and the transfer payments, some of the forbearance programs that were mandated by the feds, I think helped that. Um, but our, our income fund, uh, I think, finished in the nines uh, net. So it had a, even a little bit better than average uh, year um, in 2020. Our special ops fund did very well. Again, that's, that's, prime, that's mostly non-correlated uh, to the market. So life settlement, litigation, finance, it behaves kind of independently uh, to what goes on. Um, and, uh, and then the small business sector was the hardest. And even real estate bridge borrowers and fix and flip borrowers are, are technically small business you know, owners. Um, those were, were hit the hardest in the market. And we still finished up, uh, you know, profitable. Uh, I think we were up uh, 6% or so, um, in, in 2020 on the, on the real estate uh, fund. So, you know, the funds were still profitable, but they were compressed due to increase in delinquencies and, and defaults. Now, uh, fast forwarding a year or two, the courts were closed for the majority of two years. You know, if you remember, uh, so what happens, uh, in that case, there's no enforcement. Right on a defaulted small business loan or a real estate bridge loan, and because there's no enforcement, right, they kind of hang on the books a little bit longer, and uh, and we saw that. The other thing with litigation finance, you know, never before in U.S. history have the courts been closed 
like that, um, to my knowledge. And I've looked back, I think, uh, since, the 18th, since 1870. And so um, for the first time in U.S. history, we've had the courts closed for the majority part of two years. And um, so even our litigation finance um, took some small haircuts, that portfolio, mm-hmm. because, of course, as you know, IRR is a function of recovery and time. You know, so the longer the time to recovery, um, it lowers the IRR. So generally, lit finance has no correlation at all, unless the courts are closed, then you'll get a little bit of a haircut. So we had some compression there, uh, but overall, these funds remained uh, very low volatility and, and profitable. And um, and they were out of favor, though. Um, you know, I, I'll say in 2021, in the year, in the entire calendar year of 2021, everybody wanted those quote guaranteed double-digit returns on tech stocks and crypto, right? And nobody wanted that boring, very low risk, you know, uh, high single-digit net return. Nobody wanted it. They thought it it was too easy to get double-digit returns. So in 2022, by summer of 22, we started getting a lot more looks, a lot more love, a lot more respect, you know, for the <laughs> downside, uh, you know, protection and uh, the low-risk nature of our funds. And now I think we're on a lot of big allocators' uh, radars for 2023. Very cool. Yeah, I think when yep. you look back to 2022, you know, it's it's Martin Zweig, right, who coined the phrase in 1970, don't fight the Fed, right? And mm-hmm. we had an 18x increase in interest rates here in 2022. Um, you know, it's the worst performance for long bonds since the 1700s. You know, it's kind of crazy. Uh, if you look at the S&P down 18, the Barclays Ag down 13, we've had five years in history where both were down or negative for the year. Uh, the only years that were worse than this was 1932 and 1974. Um, so, so you know, a lot of our competitors that you know have longer duration portfolios that have uh, more credit risk uh, had a very tough, challenging period. Um, you know, I mean, you could look at pretty much any of the, the big names. Um, I think what helped us was that our portfolios are pretty short duration by nature. You know, uh, we're generally not going beyond a three year loan. Um, you know, a lot of our consumer debt and stuff like that cash flows very quickly in terms of payoffs. Uh, so it kind of enabled us to kind of, uh, I'd say, dodge a bullet on duration, hmm. where a lot of people got hit on duration and lost, you know, your Barclays Ag was down 13. You know, we were actually able to stay positive and protect capital and grow assets um, in 2022. And I think uh, short duration and the high yield of nature of our portfolio, we we did start to see, There's of course, there's a little lag but we have seen uh, where credit spreads have begun to widen. You know, stuff that we used to get eight percent on, we can get eleven or twelve now uh, in the real estate and real asset space. In the specialty credit area, where you might have gotten twelve in the past, you can now go, you know, call it fifteen, sixteen. Uh, another another thing that really helped us in twenty twenty two is that because we don't use leverage on the fund, we were in a very good position to to take advantage of other funds that did have leverage that did need to sell some securities to meet redemptions and what have you. And so we were able to buy some secondary paper, one-year paper at a 14% yield, you know, hmm. different names and stuff. That was kind of our general bucket. But we, you know, we got, you know, gravel companies in, in Canada that, you know, face municipalities that uh, aren't going away. You still got to put the gravel down uh, when the winter ice thaws and get the roads back up. And, you know, we, we are lending to those types of folks uh, with strong asset coverage, you know, we've got some clean energy plays that are really interesting in, in the uh, fracking space uh, to help those guys clean up a little bit. Uh, again, you know, one-year paper in that 14% neighborhood, uh, basically distressed sellers that, you know, need to get out and get some liquidity for their investors. 
So again, you know, leverage cuts both ways. We definitely have gotten a lot of questions about leverage and people chasing returns. And, you know, I think one of the things that Don and I try to point out is, you know, these funds that have done seven or 8% over the last decade uh, are doing that in a zero interest rate environment, you know? And we certainly would think that we will capture some of that spread increase uh, in the future and that the rates will, and the returns will move up as well. Uh, so I think those are some of the, some of the, the takeaways from 2020 and the pandemic and 2022 with the federal rate hikes. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, you know, a naturally short duration portfolio, obviously a good thing in 2022. Yeah. Anything are, are, you know, is anything structured as floating rate in your book, Sean, or not typically? Not, not typically. Uh, typically we write out fixed, fixed maturities, um, you know, generally speaking, yeah, a little bit in specialty credit, but uh, you know, like you know, I'd say seventy-five percent of the portfolios are going to be pretty fixed on that. Um, the uh, uh, trying to think of like, uh, you know, I think, you know, typically one year to call it three years. You know, consumer stuff is all going to be pretty much fixed rate. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, real estate loans that we do are usually fixed rate for a twelve-month term. Uh, you know, the specialty credit stuff where you get some floaters. Hmm. Got it. Know. Got it. Okay. And so maybe, you know, so last part of my, you know, my long question, right? It's market outlook right now. So, you know, I, it, it, high level. And then also as it relates to your portfolio, right? When we look into 2023, right? There's a lot of, you know, uncertain environment, right? Fed's obviously not done. Inflation still has a six handle on it, but, you know, unemployment stubbornly low. GDP growth continues, right? It's this, this interesting, time we're in right now, right? Yeah. Um, so what's no, kind of the house view um, for how the market evolves from here and also how the rate hike cycle evolves? Um, and where do you potentially see opportunities down the road? You want to you go first down or? Yeah, sure, sure. The, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of incredible opportunities in the specialty credit space right now. Um, but even in our real estate bridge loan uh, space, we're seeing, as Sean mentioned earlier, about 300 basis points higher for the exact same level of risk. So for the exact same borrower, literally uh, about 12, 13 months ago, you know, it's about a 300 basis point increase for a 12-month loan. So an 8 is now an 11, you know, a 9 back then is now a 12. And uh, in specialty credit, we're seeing a lot of stuff in, in uh, you know, 14, 15, uh, you know, range. And so, um, uh, litigation finance uh, is uh, is always interesting, and so those are the areas where we're seeing, I think, the highest alpha uh, relative to risk. Yeah, I think on the Fed. Well, I think like on the Fed and that stuff, you know, we we, um, we do think that the inflation is pretty sticky, and you know, it's going to be higher for longer. You know, in the past, uh, I think that you know, kind of the, the slogan was you know lower for longer with the Fed. And I think now it might be higher for longer. Um, you know, the, um, the retail sales number that came in this week, CPI numbers that came in, the employment numbers that came in, they're all quite strong. So, so I think, uh, you know, that, um, uh, uh, you know, that the Fed will probably, you know, we, we wrote a letter last month. We said, basically, it's kind of like the Fed versus the capital markets, right? And the, the capital markets want the rates to come down so we can get things going in the equity space and growth investments again. And the Fed is like, geez, we got to choke off inflation and, you know, going to try and keep rates high. And it's going to be really data. It's going to be driven around all the data. And I think in the last month, the data definitely says that the Fed is going to be sticky and, and stay higher longer. 
So now for us, that's a good thing because, you know, short-term rates have moved up to 5% on one-year treasury bill. And so our, our, you know, investments that tend to be that one to three-year bucket uh, are seeing a nice improvement in the yields that we're capturing. Um, so we're, we're pretty, pretty positive there. I think we also have a pretty contrarian take on housing. You know, we do feel like um, that the consumers have, uh, the homeowners have a lot of equity. They have very low uh, fixed rate mortgages locked in. And we don't think you're going to see a lot of supply in the market, you know, come to the market uh, hmm. from, uh, you know, sellers looking to move. And that's going to keep this, this shortage of housing, uh, you know, will continue to be a problem and will be an underlying supporting factor in the market. Uh, hmm. So we're, we actually, we were pretty positive. I think that's the second half of 2023 story there. Um, and then we've, you know, we are looking at, you know, areas where there's, uh, you know, blood in the streets and people don't want to approach it. You know, and uh, so we've got a deal that we're looking at uh, that is a data center for crypto miners. And rather than having direct exposure to crypto, we would be doing equipment finance deals for them. So we will be financing the uh, transformers and the cabling and the mm-hmm. substation. And we'll have, you know, uh, three to one asset coverage on that stuff. And, you know, uh, a lot of equity underneath us. And we're kind of trying to take that approach of, okay, no, nobody wants to touch it. Right, but we understand digital assets pretty well. We've been involved for a long time, and uh, you know, we think here we can kind of participate through the picks and shovels, kind of take the Levi's approach. You know, we don't have any direct exposure to the underlying, but we'll we'll finance those transformers. We'll finance the stuff that they need to power the data centers. Very cool. Okay, maybe we take a step back um, and from macro back into kind of just you know portfolio and how you guys how you guys build things, right? So. You know, take me through portfolio construction, how you put it together, right? So that's everything from, you know, sourcing to, you know, sizing and then portfolio management as well, right? So, you know, uh, Don, Sean, I'm not sure he wants to take that one. but Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll start off. Um, yeah, we, you know, we take a top-down approach uh, first. So first, to identify objectives, create the investment policy statement, and then figure out how to get there, right? And so and we've always looked at it. We have 23 different counterparties that we work with for assessing deal flow, accessing deal flow, picking and choosing loans. Sometimes we're a JV, sometimes we're a participant, you know, on a facility, um, and sometimes we're the lead and only lender um, on a deal like the like the uh, the crypto um, uh, data center that that Sean just mentioned. So we're really agnostic to how we get it. That's all we care about is really having the best uh, risk adjusted returns for for our investors. Um, whether that comes through a marketplace lender or buying directly from a bank or buying a distressed, uh, you know, distressed asset, it's really just how does it mix and fit in with our investment policy statement. We have a, a ton of uh, risk limits and concentration limits built into that investment policy statement. Everything from geographic uh, concentration to concentration on loan type. So, like on the real estate fund, for example, we have a, a single-family, multifamily, and commercial. And we do a minimum of 25% in each category, a max of 50%. In each category, for example, we also cap the exposure to no more than 1.25% of the uh, of the entire portfolio uh, for a single loan. And most of the time, it's even less than a half a percent. So that gives us lots of uh, loans, as, as Sean mentioned, 300 loans in 40 different states. So we'll partner with fintech platforms and anybody and everybody, you know, to, to really get the types of deal flow that we need. We, we have a credit modeling overlay. We have our own box that anything we look at kind of goes through um, for a pass or, or fail. Um, in the early years, it was an API sort of large race, uh, they used to call it, 
at Lending Club and Prosper, whoever had the you know, fastest servers and, and API. And, uh, and we were certainly a, a, a among the top of their co-location. It was a game in the system, you know, how to get in there first. And uh, things have changed since then. But uh, we really uh, have a great, rep- uh, great reputation. We have very deep connections between Sean and I both. And so we really have access to, um, to you know, a lot of different types of assets under the private uh, credit umbrella. You want to add to that, Sean? No, I think I think that really covers it pretty pretty thoroughly. I mean, right. I think you know you know I'd say there's a couple layers. You know, the first layer is the originators, and as Don mentioned, you know, we really do try to be a good partner to the originators. So, you know, we may be doing a credit facility with them, we may be buying loans off their platform, uh, or we may be doing a direct origination deal like the one that we just talked about in the power space. Um, you know, and so with the platforms, it's great because we get a, a an initial filter. Right, you know they, you know they may get a hundred loans that come in, a hundred loan applications. They may decide to process, you know, seven of them, and then we have our own filters on top of that. From what we can see, we've done a hundred thousand loans over the years, you know, for about one point eight billion dollars in origination, and uh, you know we have a lot of data too, and so we can kind of see what has worked in the past, what hasn't worked in the past, and kind of adjust our buy boxes around that, and uh, so we kind of get, you know. Uh, kind of a double layer of uh, what I would call tech-enabled in- investments. You know, where we are really trying to be uh, using uh, the data analytics to our to our advantage. You know, I'll give you an example. You know, in the consumer space, one of our platforms that we we work with uh, talks a little bit about uh, the default differentials between somebody that goes through an application with a mouse and the person that does the tab button. And the t- person that does the tab button tends to be a more savvy borrower mm-hmm. who is a little more tech-enabled. And has a lower default rate, oh, and so you, you know, yeah, wow. little things like this, you know, can kind of wow. make a a difference on the edges, you know, wow. and helps us as a as a lending fund, you know, helps us collect capture that coupon longer, right, and and, and increase the the runway on that return by avoiding those uh, maybe what are kind of you know borrowers you you don't necessarily want to uh, be lending to, so. Yeah. You know, we have a lot of different tools that we can access through our partners and and internal models that we have here. And then once, generally speaking, across your portfolios, I think, you know, based on the strategy and given that these are generally short duration um, exposures, it's the, the risk management is really upfront, right, on the underwriting. And there's probably limited turnover in the portfolio. But do you guys ever sell anything? Do you ever hedge? Do you put on kind of, you know, market hedges or, you know, talk through that a bit? Yeah, we had one really interesting transaction we did a couple months ago. Um, you know, uh, when the markets were just, you know, really going sideways, we have a lot of investments that are really uncorrelated, right? And so, uh, People want those exposures. And so we took a, a small piece of our life settlements portfolio and put it out for the bid. And the bid came back very strong, much stronger mm. than where we had been holding it, actually. And we were able to monetize that, sell a portion of that portfolio at a, what we would consider a pretty strong premium to where the market was valuing it at the time. Uh, and then we used those resources to redeploy to kind of take advantage of some of the distressed sellers in the secondary markets. Uh, yeah, so we really can cool. move the portfolio yeah. around a little bit. Uh, you know, uh, we don't move it a ton, uh, but you know, there are opportunities like that that come up with the life settlements and and you know, other deals that would you would think would be very uh, less liquid, uh, but they are so uncorrelated that there is a very strong demand uh, for those products. 
Very cool. All right. I think we've been going a little over half an hour or so now. So I guess, you know, guys, if we'll, 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 um, you know, we'll wrap it up shortly, but any, you know, any closing comments you'd like to make uh, about the firm um, or the current environment or whatever, you know, floor is yours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, uh, as I, as I kind of started with uh, at the beginning, one of the things that was very exciting to me about joining Prime Meridian I do feel like the firm is very well positioned to to help institutional investors with their private credit portfolios. Most of those investors have you know pretty generic exposure uh, in the private credit markets with very large shops. And I think what really differentiates us from the competition is uh, not only our size but our kind of innovative nature or DNA, where we are trying to you know pursue markets that are less efficient, less well understood. They're smaller. You know, uh, and it creates a, a a great alpha source, I think, for those investors. I think we're kind of a, an interesting play for for the institutional crowd. Very cool, Don. Any closing remarks? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think that was very well said. Uh, we're very excited about 2023. I mean, there's certainly a lot of risks um, in the in the markets and in the world. Um, there generally are. I mean, we have a war in Europe right now. You know, we have uh, we have a high inflationary, high interest rate environment. You know, I do think there will be some uh, some accidents with some uh, financial firms and investment funds out there here in the next few months, uh, because every time the Fed raises interest rates, there's, there's blow ups, you know, somewhere, uh, even in the taper tantrum of 2018, uh, there were some big blow ups. Um, the first big blow up has uh, happened already. That's FTX. <laughs> but there may uh, my, my educated guess is there's a couple more coming. It certainly won't be prime meridian. And uh, we're really excited about this year. We think we're going to get some big allocations. Uh, we're going to perform um, uh, very well, in my opinion. All right. Very cool. All right, Don Davis, Sean Bill, thanks so much for uh, for joining us for uh, for another Salt Talks. Um, take care, everybody. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for, yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you, Dan, for hosting a great interview. And thank you to Sean and Don for joining us today on Salt Talks. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode or any of our previous episodes, all of the episodes of Salt Talks are available on demand on our website at salt.org backslash talks. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. It's always great to hear from great investors and portfolio managers like Sean and Don. But on behalf of Dan and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.